The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. He may seem like a mild-mannered engineer until you install an HVAC system improperly. Then the whole turning green Hulk shirt-ripping thing happens, and it's not pretty. Here's Bill Spohn. Welcome to Episode 77 of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We'll be talking about energy demand as a resource with Matt Golden of Recurve. Now, Matt is the founder and CEO of Recurve, which is a company that connects the dots between efficiency, electrification, renewable energy, and DERS, or DERS, Distributed Energy Resources. Recurve's mission is to accelerate the transition to a clean energy economy by integrating behind-the-meter demand flexibility resources into the emerging carbon-free energy grid. It's a lot of jargon in this. This is a really dense episode, but it's a really important topic. DERs can be described as small-scale electricity generation and storage devices that are generally connected to the grid. These sources can be solar, wind, and battery storage, amongst others. Now, Matt's focus, as he described in the episode, is on energy and the climate while looking for the customer benefit. He's got a really impressive career path, including the founding of Sustainable Spaces, which was also known as Recurves at the time, in 2004, which over seven years grew to be the largest home performance contractor on the West Coast. So he's walked the home performance walk. You can find Matt and follow his work on his website and LinkedIn, and there's actually a link. Those links are in the show notes, as well as a link to the most recent TEDx talk that he did discussing virtual power plants. Now, this episode was recorded in October 2019, but you should check the links that are in the show notes for more up-to-date info as things change very rapidly in this field. Okay, I hope you enjoy this episode with Matt Golden of Recurve. Today, we're pleased to have Matt Golden, who's with Recurve, talking to us today about his career journey and how he built a business out of frustration with the status quo. Did I capture that correctly, Matt? That's not a bad summary. This is actually Recurve 2.0. Some of you might be familiar with what was first sustainable spaces and then recurve what I would call 1.0. That's not the official name. And so I started out trying to make a business out of whole building, home performance, got out of the tech industry into solar, got the bug that energy efficiency was the climate solution that we need to deliver, became a contractor, built up a pretty large business and realized that I made more money by doing low quality work, not high quality work. And when the programs came to help, they actually made the business harder, not easier. And realizing that there's so much potential in existing buildings that doing quality work that actually delivers results is critical. But if the incentives are reversed, it's not going to work. So really, everything we're doing today starts with how do we align incentives properly so that when you retrofit buildings and you deliver real results for homeowners and to the grid, you can get paid for them so that delivering high quality real outcomes becomes something that drives profit margins, not the opposite. Because I do think this industry has to scale dramatically. And I think the keys to making anything scale is profit. It has to be profitable first. So we need... It's got to be real business. Yeah. It's got to be real business. The contractors I know making a lot of money, unfortunately, at the moment are generally not the really high quality providers because it costs more to deliver good outcomes. And when you're dealing with deemed average programs and really no accountability to outcomes at all, you don't make more money by delivering more savings. You might get generally a good reputation, but 
it hasn't shown that it really builds a sustainable business. And we need to flip that around. We need to say that if you can make your customers happy and deliver results for them and also deliver significant, valuable results to the grid, you can get paid for that and it'll give you a competitive advantage in the market. This idea occurred to you and then the process of sustainable spaces or recurve 1.0. You talked about the size of the business. Why don't you describe for our listeners a little bit about how the business grew sustainable spaces and the area of the country you're working on, the kind of work you did? Yeah. So based out here in the Bay Area, San Francisco, turns out we don't have a heck of a lot of weather, which in and of itself is somewhat challenging when it comes to HVAC and Shell. But like I said, I started out, made a leap into the solar industry and actually took a home performance training program that efficient that well now it's efficiency first back then it was cbpca california building performance contractors association put on and i got the bug there's this huge opportunity to reduce before you produce and that just seems to make a whole heck of a lot of sense it made a lot of sense to me and it seemed like a very inefficient business it is a very inefficient business but i thought i saw an opportunity and it's an interesting progression because i'm a kind of a software guy definitely kind of a software guy came out of the tech industry said, wow i can come in and build some software we're going to audit buildings We'll farm out the work, we'll make a margin, we'll scale, it'll be great. Well, that didn't turn out quite true. We built the software and we realized, wow, I might be able to mark up a contractor 20% with an emphasis on might, because it's pretty hard to get paid, but that's not enough margin to the crazy cost of customer, doing an audit, losing money on an audit every time, doing marketing, dealing with then managing crews across five trades. 20% wasn't enough to be profitable by a solid margin. And so next thing I knew... I was getting contractor licenses, ended up with four of those licenses personally, and realized the only real way I could figure out how to make the economics work. And I think when you look around the country at who is scaling or who has ever scaled, you have to become vertically integrated because the margins aren't high enough any other way. So next thing I knew, we saw sustainable spaces, and then we were rebranded as Recurve. We were a fully integrated contractor with a solar insulation, general, and HVAC license, and doing almost everything in-house. So traditional, I mean, if there's such a thing. Home performance. We were the first BPI certified contractor, or at that point, accredited contractor on the West Coast. We did energy audits and we did everything from solar thermal and solar electric to high performance HVAC, insulation, shell, new ducts, the whole nine yards. We had a couple engineers on staff. And again, we were delivering exactly what you're supposed to deliver. And we had a very hard time charging what was necessary to make the business profitable enough, is what it comes down to. So the work was, would you call it underappreciated? It's fair to say that? Customers loved us. They totally appreciated Customers loved it. Yeah, Undervalued is what it was. Frankly, actually, we did better before there was a program. Before the utilities came to help, we were doubling every year just on the merits of happy customers. Hi, I'm the government. I'm here to help. Exactly. (laughs) But there's scale issues in that, right? I don't think you can do this. We were finding early adopters. And early adopters, we noticed, we burned through the early adopters. (laughs) We really did. And when you get out of those early customers that want to save polar bears and be super green and really care about indoor air quality and the rut likes, and that's all great, but there's a limited finite market of those customers. And the part where we were undervalued is that energy efficiency is this huge potential climate change resource. And increasingly, we're seeing it as a load balancing resource as we get AMI data and hourly inputs and the rebates that went directly to my customer, not to me. So they weren't really helping my margin, actually. The customers were price competing us like the rebates didn't even exist. And when you look at the cost of participating in the program, they're kind of equal, maybe. And so the program that came along to help in California's Advanced Home Upgrade Program, there's a whole bunch of Recovery Act programs. As a pretty large company, we were running 10 construction crews, retrofitting 30 to 40 buildings per month, whole home projects averaging nearly 20 grand. 
the program actually became our number one competitor. They were advertising on Google AdWords against us and showing up at the same trade shows and things that we used to go to, but they would have a quadruple wide booth with seven people in it. So it was a pretty large, fairly large in the market, like 90% of the market. The sad story is our cost of customer went up, our administrative costs went up, and the market value went down because a lot of these smaller companies were just not bidding high enough to support things like health insurance for your employees and paid time off and things like that, which we had. So it was kind of a sad story, whatever, learned a lot. And what came out of that was this idea that companies like Recurve and others in the market who are innovative and dealing with customers directly are going to come up with the scalable business models of the future. It's not going to come from programs, It's not going to be created by consultants or utilities in a report in advance. It needs to come from competition. When you look at like a Tesla or a Nest or a solar lease, that's where those things were born out of. Failure everywhere to deliver the things that actually work. So the core idea behind Recurve 2.0 is deemed savings and rebates are a trap. If you give my customer an incentive or me an incentive in advance based on some average or energy model, my incentives are reversed. So my incentive is to do the least, and I'm not saying like we didn't do this actually, which is a problem, but my incentive was if I wanted to maximize profit, which is actually what a business is supposed to do, you do the absolute least you can possibly get away with because that's how you're going to make the most money because there's no advantage to better outcomes. It's all an average. And therefore we have to be regulated because we can't be trusted because we're the everything is opaque and our incentives are backwards. So the big idea behind pay for performance and everything we're doing today is pay me for what I deliver, hold me accountable to my outcomes, and then let me, and we're talking about the royal me here, let the market industry figure out how to develop products customers actually want that make them happy, that also deliver real benefits to the grid and the climate, and pay for what's delivered. Don't pay for an estimate. Really, nothing works that way. You don't open a coffee shop. So if you do open a coffee shop, actually, you have an Excel model that estimates how many cups of coffee you're going to sell, but you don't get paid for that Excel model. You got to sell the coffee. And so that's pay for performance. Pay me for what I deliver. Therefore, I'm taking on the performance risk. So regulators, and still got to protect customers. There's still a role, but you can largely leave me alone. Let me figure out how to deliver those outcomes. And if I have an incentive as a contractor then to figure out, or an aggregator to figure out how do I maximize those results because I get paid for it. So take me through a little bit of a timeline over which these things occur, just general timeframes. Not exact months, but just the years which you were doing this kind of work and how things have migrated to where you are now. So Sustainable Spaces was started in about 2005, something along those lines, 2006. And again, slowly developed into a whole building retrofit company, got BPI accredited, took more and more under our wing over time. Somewhere in the middle, we've been writing software. I've been writing software to automate energy auditing and these sorts of things. We raised some venture capital from a bunch of traditional venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, but also folks like Lowe's and SunPower to scale the business. And early ideas included franchising, things like that, but we rapidly became a software company. And so we were kind of a split personality where we had, on one hand, 10 construction crews departing out the office at 7 a.m. in trucks, and on the other hand, a bullpen of 20-plus software developers writing software tools for contractors. The idea that how do you deploy at scale and frankly, part of that is like energy modeling, but that's actually the small part of it. Really, the challenge is how do you take a contractor and send an auditor out onto site to understand a customer's problems, understand their building, put together a complicated multidisciplined work scope, figure out how to price it, which was the hardest part. How do you get somebody to be able to estimate six or seven trades way harder than energy auditing, and then be able to sell that project to the customer ideally same day. And so that's the software we developed is the, you know, there's actually... There's quite a bit of it still in existence, but building tablet-based tools to enable that. Pre-iPad, <laughs> was what it, this was before a lot of the new tools and high-speed data works and all of that. And so 
that was kind of recurve 1.0. We ran headlong into a couple of things. One is the Recovery Act and home performance programs that really changed the market. And again, in a way that didn't benefit companies that were at scale, whether it was Recurve or Masco Home Services or Green Homes America, you'll note that these companies that were investing heavily and trying to scale just ran into a brick wall, really across the board. And we were a victim of that. But also the economy changed, like we had the housing crisis. So the truth of the matter is the whole economy and particularly the housing market was going down to the right, not up into the right. So we got put in the position where the contracting business actually, which was breaking even roughly, began losing money pretty precipitously when the programs came along because our close rate fell as did our margins at the same time because we had all this new competition we were dealing with. We had real prices. We had an office and insurance. and We weren't competing with anybody that had anything like that. And there really wasn't a market for the software. There weren't a lot of contractors scaling up. And we found that we were having a hard time addressing the market because every program had their own anointed software tool. Contractors couldn't even choose to use the Recurve software, the Recurve 1.0 software if they wanted to in most cases. And so we sold, that's the software solution, which was pretty powerful. We were running on Hadoop energy models in the cloud, which is way before its time. And then we sold that kind of software solution to Tendril, uh, now Uplight. And we dismantled the contracting organization because I couldn't make it work in Excel. And that's really the challenge around home performance. There's some stuff I could share. I did a bunch of trainings back in the day because we have these very recurve 1.0 is a venture funded company. We had pro forma models. And the truth is that home performance is a very difficult business to make money. And there's kind of a rule of thumb, which is if you can make it work in Excel does not mean you can do it. But if you can't make it work in Excel means you can't do it. And I could not make the business with reasonable assumptions, make enough profit to keep growing it. And that continues to be a problem. And that led me say, what's wrong here? And frankly, with your listeners, I can share all these models. We, we kind of generic, we made them more generic, did a bunch of trainings. I'd have contractors call me and say, I think your model's broken. I can't make it make my business profitable. And I would say, I don't know what to tell you. I'm giving you this model and I'm not guaranteeing your business is profitable. That's the problem, actually. And so people ask me how to transform a market. I was just at an electricity, an EPRI electrification symposium yesterday. They say, what, how do we transform this market? And my answer is 15%. Yeah, what does it mean? What does that mean? It means if you have a business that makes 15% net margin, you will scale. And if you make 8% or negative 5%, you won't. <laughs> That's it. That's transformation of the market. It's, you got to make it profitable. And so I was dumbfounded. This business is way too hard and does not spit out profit margins that enables me to keep investing in it. So we had to shut it down. But that remains a problem. And so everything I'm doing today is how do you fix that problem? And my core assumption is that we got to get rid of the programs that create all this extra weight and overhead. But more importantly, we got to extract the value that we're creating. There's customer benefits. And like I'm really focused on the energy climate benefits, but sell your customers on anything they'll buy. Customers don't tend to care about power plants and very few of them really care about climate change. Maybe that's changing, I hope, actually. But when it comes to writing a check, I'm not positive it is. Like everyone wants to do good, but we're talking about really large checks out of their wallet. And like I have not found those things that connect all that often. So more importantly, what are these grid benefits? Like the reason why there's public policy that cares about retrofitting buildings predominantly, at least utility policy, is that if we can reduce on the grid, that's cheaper than producing. And more importantly, if we can do it in the times and locations that really benefit this new grid that we're in today, where we have rapid decarbonization. Well, not rapid yet, but we have decarbonization. I mean, I was in Texas yesterday talking about decarbonization in Texas. How awesome is that? But we are so rapidly moving towards clean energy, and this clean energy is variable, and it creates massive load shape problems. In California, most days, probably most people are generally aware of this, but we are exporting power. We are paying Oregon to take solar off our hands because we have no place to put it. 
And then in the late afternoon, we have the peak race back. And between like 4 and 9 p.m., we're running on fossil fuels almost entirely again. And that's what drives everything on the grid. And so that's commonly called the duck curve. And it's very real. So in addition to customer benefits, we're creating these grid benefits if we can change demand when it really matters. And it turns out home performance is definitely drastically undervalued in this regard. And this is really what Recurve does. And so to even back up a step. So let's talk about P4P. If you're going to get paid for performance, if you're a contractor, an aggregator, and let me be clear, well, we're not talking about customers paying for performance. This is a wholesale signal. We want to align the incentives so that the contractors or their aggregator, depending how big they are and if they want to play that role, they're the ones getting paid for the performance of their portfolio by the utility. And this is really important because I want, if you do work that actually delivers valuable results, you being a contractor or an aggregator, you should make money. It's not all customer benefit. You want the alignment of the incentive structure. But if you're going to sign a contract that says, I'm not going to get a rebate in advance anymore, I'm going to get paid for the stuff that works based on how it works. You got to know what it is. So if you're going to have a market, the first part of a market is what is your product, which is often called weights and measures in a commodity market. What is it we're trading? And this really is what we're doing at Recurve 2.0 here and make a clean switch, which is if you're going to get paid for outcomes, you got to know what you're getting paid for. And in energy efficiency, we've never had that. There is no standardization. Uh, you ask five engineers the savings for the same set of buildings, you'll get 12 answers. They might vary by 40%. And they're actually all equally correct because there is no agreement on what correct is. And so energy efficiency is a calculated value. It's a derivative. And if we're going to transact and trade and be held accountable to a calculated value, we have to have a common understanding of that calculation. And so that's really the core of what Recurve 2.0 is doing that facilitates pay for performance and also extracting its true value, which is our core is open source. It's the Caltrack methods and the open EE meter, which are both in the Linux foundation. So it's something called Linux Foundation Energy, which is one of the largest open source foundations in the world. Probably about half the software on your computer right now, whoever you are, whatever machine you're listening to is derived, it exists in the Linux foundation. And so what Caltrack methods are a set of very clearly defined methods on how you use monthly, but much more interestingly, AMI data, smart meter data once available to calculate energy savings. But when we have AMI data, we're calculating what we call resource curve, which is the change in demand on an hourly basis and whether or not that change is predictable or elastic. And the Caltrack methods in the opening meter can be thought of as a weights and measures. It's a very defined set of methods with a standard open source implementation which anybody can use for any purpose without restrictions. It's entirely in the public domain. And so that's our scales. And that's what facilitates the transaction. Now we can say, we're going to pay you for performance, and this is exactly how we're going to do it, so that you create a consistent cash flow over time, that one that you can rely on and you can forecast, and you're not arguing over what is energy savings, and you're not waiting around a year four so an evaluator can do a 700 variable pooled regression model and tell you what their black box says. That's not something. Right. It'll all be different to whoever's doing the different, yeah. So you created a uniform yardstick for this measurement for the pay for performance model. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So that's Caltrack and the open meter when taken together, open source, available to anybody. We deploy that as a SaaS solution. So we have a version of that that we sell, which is implemented on Google Cloud services and parallelized with user management and ETL and other bunch of garbage, but basically a turnkey version of that. That's what we provide to utilities, but also to comp aggregators in the market, whether they're program implementers, large contractors. Generally not smaller ones, this is hard, but large contractors, IoT providers, DR providers, folks that are actually engaging customers. And so you have a product and now you can actually get paid over time because it's predictable. And so we're measuring the key thing when we have AMI data. And again, you can do a lot with monthly data, but you can't actually fix grid problems that are based on time and location with monthly averages. 
And so the big game changer is, first of all, pay for the outcomes and do not prescribe the solution. If you change demand in a given hour, what is it worth? And maybe we don't care if it's coming from insulation, IoT, HVAC, or even a storage system or an EV in the garage. Maybe what we care about is how demand was changed and what's it worth. And so we can send a price signal and we can let the market compete and figure out how do I build products that customers want to buy, that solve problems they're willing to pay for, because most of the money is going to come from them. But at the same time, we're going to aggregate this virtual power plant of mutual benefits the T&D, the capacity, the energy, the carbon benefits, these do not accrue to that individual customer. That accrues mutually. So the aggregator, the company that's actually engaging the customer, will sign contracts with counterparties that value these tertiary benefits. It says, look, if I'm PG&E and you're an aggregator and you can reduce demand in Oakland when the Dynagy gas turbine we're trying to shut down would have been running, that's a huge benefit to us. And it's cheaper than the alternatives in T&D and we'll pay you for it. And if you can reduce demand in the peak period so we don't have to go in the energy markets and pay exorbitantly for these really expensive electrons, that's a benefit to us. We'll pay you for that. And what that creates is a dynamic where the winning solutions, the companies that get ahead and make money and are profitable are the ones that figure out how to solve customer problems and turn whatever it is they're doing into a product people actually demand that is also optimized for grid and climate benefits. That's the fundamental thing. We're reversing that equation. Now, solutions that perform well become more profitable. And because performance risk is flowing into the market, the marketplace has the freedom to innovate on business model and technology without each thing having to be regulated with a work paper and all of that, because the performance risk is actually landing in the marketplace. What's the uptake at this point or how far along is it? It sounds like Recur 2.0 is out there. It's being used by programs. I don't know if you can say which programs or you care to, but is it being used and what's the impact? What's the traction? A lot of traction and growing. And the main reason, and I'll talk about some of the specifics, is that the pain is no longer abstract. So we're a startup. We can't go places that aren't ready for us fundamentally, but like in states like California and New York and increasingly Illinois and Colorado and Oregon, even places like Australia where we're working, the pain is acute. We are decarbonizing. We have huge load shape problems. It's like a zoo out there. It's not all ducks, but it's a menagerie of weird load (laughs) shapes emerging. And this is acute pain and it costs real money. And storage is amazing. It's super valuable because it's so flexible. It's super finite and doesn't even come close to closing the gap. In fact, solar is scaling so quickly that the gap just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And the gap I'm talking about is a flexibility gap. So bringing on all this solar and all this wind that have relatively predictable schedules, the sun tends to go up and down every day. That load balancing problem is becoming acute and it's becoming super expensive and there's not enough storage and there will not be enough storage to solve the problem. And in fact, when you add up, for example, getting to 50% solar in California, which is way under where we need to be to get to our zero carbon in 2045 goal. When you add up DR, storage, EVs, all the usual DERs that we can think of, we end up 17 gigawatt hours short on load balancing resource. Like it's peeling away and getting worse, not better over time. And that that's the market opportunity. So this transition actually is incredibly valuable for energy efficiency and basically what we call flexibility. We don't call it efficiency because we're not measuring energy efficiency. We're measuring flexibility and demand. And it really is a meta principle. It incorporates efficiency, but also that's what we would think of as DR storage. We don't actually care. It's whatever's going on behind the meter and how that manifests at the meter and how valuable that ultimately is that matters. But there's a real key to this all is shifting to electric, correct? In order to perform all this, it has to be electric. Is that true? The consumption. 
Yeah. So the reason to shift fundamentally that we need to shift to electric is we're decarbonizing. And no matter how you cut it, when you burn natural gas, carbon comes out some end of the stack. But it's not quite as easy as it sounds, unfortunately. Silver bullets would be great. I've yet to ever meet a silver bullet. And electrification is in that category. We should absolutely electrify. We have to. I'm going to say that right up front. I'm putting in a fancy phase change battery and air to water heat pump in my own house. It's crazy expensive, but it's a fun experiment. But every, we do need to entirely get off natural gas as soon as feasible, by the way, is kind of the caveat to that. But it's not a silver bullet. We're doing a lot of work with different utilities, SMUD, for example, being one of them, which is moving towards carbon goals directly. And I think many folks might know of putting a lot of effort into electrification programs, much more so now than energy efficiency programs. But there's a few challenges there. I mean, the fundamental challenge is in a place like California, where we have heating load, when you move from gas to electric, you're building electric load in some of the hardest to reach times of the year. Carbon is not an average. It varies by time and location. And winter nights and mornings and evenings are the dirtiest, hardest to clean set times of the year. And that's, in fact, when we're going to build that load. The, in fact, the biggest bump in load we see is right first thing in the morning when people fire up their heat pumps to catch their house back up. And that's a really hard time of the year to clean. We're running on natural gas at that time of the year. And when you do the math on the realistic COPs of installed heat pumps and carbon intensity of electrons in those windows of time, it's not such a gigantic carbon win after all. So our approach to electrification is that heat pumps are a tactic and they're a great tactic, but the strategy needs to be at a little bit of a higher order. So we think that if we are agnostic to the heat pump and we focus instead on valuing carbon correctly, that will create the incentive to move off of natural gas and it'll create the incentive to move on to heat pumps for space heating and conditioning and cooking and all of that. But it'll also encourage the broad range of different interventions we need. So when you put in a heat pump and you're building nighttime load, you know what the most valuable thing is you'll ever do? Insulate, right? Efficiency more value. Yeah, to retain. Well, we're burning really dirty and expensive electrons to create heat. That insulation is worth more than ever. It's not one or the other. Make it worth it. I hear it all the time. It's like, should we do electrification or efficiency? And I'm like, that's not the question. We should, in fact, we need to do a huge amount of electrification and even more efficiency, more than we would have because it's more valuable now. But it's really more than that. It's we want to do electrification and we're going to need efficiency, which is predictable load shaping. We need efficiency that's focused on those right hours of the day. And we're also going to need demand response and we're going to need a lot of storage and we're going to need a lot of winter optimized renewables. We need all of that stuff. For us to really decarbonize. And so in our opinion, the meta principle is send a price signal that says we will pay you for changing demand and we'll value that against the value of carbon, which is way undervalued currently, but also T&D capacity, energy, ancillary services. And out of that, we will find what hopefully emerges, what should emerge if that signal is sent correctly is deep energy retrofits with heat pumps and storage and solar and all the rest. It's not just heat pumps. The meta policy should be at a higher order. And then we can run some heat pump programs, but we want to avoid the mistakes of the past. We can't just take Recovery Act programs where we are doing marketing and training contractors and swap out efficiency for heat pumps and expect different outcomes. So some of the good news for building performance and energy efficiency in general is that it is definitely undervalued. And it's pretty easy to understand, actually, especially at least in places like California. So if you just look at home performance, period. When we look backwards and we analyze, which we've done now, like every home performance job that's happened in PG&E territory, it turns out there's a secret, which is you have to use energy before you can save it. That's an important point. 
And so when you're doing HVAC and Shell, and you're doing things to reduce HVAC energy and Shell energy, when are you saving energy? Well, when are you using HVAC and Shell? Well, it turns out you're using quite a bit of it in the evening and then overnight and in the morning. And so when we look at the hourly impact of home performance, by a huge margin, almost not all of, but the vast majority of the savings are happening in the 4 to 9 p.m. system peak window because that's when the HVAC is running, especially air conditioning peak. So this is really valuable because those system peaks are when all of the grid value happen and all the carbon value. So moving to hourly is very beneficial for home performance. And a good example of this, a specific example of this, when you look at the difference between different types of measures on the grid. So take, for example, commercial lighting. Commercial lighting, by all accounts, looks very inexpensive, something that we ought to be doing. When you look at it on a monthly average basis, you look at KWH saves per month, it looks really cheap. But in reality, I mean, it is cheap, but what we find is that the savings are pretty flat and they actually peak around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which in California in particular is not when we need energy savings. In fact, most 3 p.m. periods, we have more electrons than we know what to do with. Whereas home performance, which looks way less cost-effective on a monthly basis, again, has its peak savings really dramatically in that peak period. And so if you look at carbon as a good example, and we calculate carbon on a marginal hourly locational basis, which means there's a different value based on where you are on the grid, what time of day it is. And we're not looking at the average carbon, we're looking at the last power plant running, because that's the one we're actually turning off with efficiency. So the important point is that if you do a megawatt hour of residential home performance, it delivers 59% more avoided CO2 in California than a megawatt hour of commercial lighting. Not rocket science, it's just when the savings are happening, 12 to 3 versus 4 to 9. So we're undervalued. And not just in terms of carbon either, that's the peak window for all avoided cost. The average is not helping us, it's hurting us in home performance. And we're leaving a lot on the table. The other thing that is just stark and increasingly obvious and a little dumbfoundingly obvious is that we're really approaching the entire market incorrectly with energy efficiency, different than you would in any other industry. So if I'm Apple and I just developed the Apple Watch, I'm going to pick on my mom specifically. You could give my mom an Apple Watch and you could call her every day to remind her to put it on and she ain't wearing an Apple Watch. So if you try to sell it to my mom as an early adopter, you're going to build a business model that is like, we have to give this thing away for free and we need to budget for someone to call her every day. And she still probably won't do it. So when you create a product, you got to find product market fit and you start with early adopters. You're probably looking at the iPhone or the iWatch example thing. You're looking for early adopters. You're probably looking for millennials with new iPhones as a starting point. So on efficiency, where everything is deemed and measure-based, we don't do that at all. We've decided that an air conditioner, a high efficiency air conditioner always saves energy. And so the goal becomes how many can we possibly sell? And of course, contractors make money not on saving energy, but selling. And the implementers generally have their performance-based bonuses on how many air conditioners they can install in a quarter not how they work. So everyone's changing volume. And so if you do home performance in California, I'm going to focus on the electric side of the equation. If you do home performance in California with HVAC and Shell, you generate a resource curve, kind of like I described with the summertime's peaks. And essentially you get a lot of winners and losers on average, right? So when we just go out there and sell whoever's willing to take the stuff from us, we end up with a portfolio, very consistent overall portfolio, but 31% of the customers had their bills go up afterwards. And I'll talk about why. We actually know roughly why. Some of that is just variance. But like again, across the portfolio, it's saving 10% kilowatt hours, but one full third of the customers are not saving anything. The bills are going the opposite direction on average. When we look at that in terms of the system values, we look at GHGs on a marginal hourly avoided cost basis. We end up with just under 0.3 tons of GHGs per customer per year. 
And across T&D, Capacity Energy, GHGs, Ancillary Services, these customers are worth about $150 per customer per year. So if you do the math, 10-year EUI, maybe $1,500 total, which is under the rebate. This is not cost-effective. I can talk about problems with cost-effectiveness, but in terms of total resource cost tests and how we're currently being judged, this program's not cutting it. So I'm going to throw a thesis out there, though, which is every single efficiency program can be cost-effective immediately if we want it to be. When I mentioned these distributions, you have winners and losers, 31% negatives, but I also got these people saving 40% in pretty good numbers. It's a broad distribution. Why don't we try to focus on the folks that have better outcomes? And it turns out we can predict them really easily in many cases. We can do a lot of fancy stuff, but just starting with the basics. So pg e has 5 million residential accounts. We can't address 5 million. We don't need 5 million customers, right? That's too many to address. So what if we started by identifying the 500,000, which is still too many to address, but like the 10% customers that are most likely to have good outcomes. And so if you're doing an air conditioner, which is really what we're looking at here, it turns out what's indicative of an air conditioner of someone who's going to have a good outcome in an air conditioner? Well, what if we look for the people using energy in the peak period in the summer, and we isolated for energy that's coming from an air conditioner, which we do with a re- this is part of the Caltrack system when we do these regression models. And so we isolate for the top ten percent of summer peak air conditioner users, which we know in advance. We know who these customers are. So we drill down from five hundred thousand, an average, where you got the winners and you got my mom on one side and a millennial on the other. And you say, like, let's find the millennials and avoid my mom. Sorry, mom. So when you do that, we pick out the 10% of top potential for savings. Well, now we go from 31% to 8% negative savers in the portfolio. And we've doubled the customer bill savings from 10 to 20%. And we've gone the other way and we increased the peak summer savings from 17 to 32%. So 2x peak savings, 75% negative summer, negative saver, less negative savers. And the customers are saving twice as much on their bill. Well, you know what the punchline is? We've just increased GHGs from 0.3 tons to 1.2 tons, 4x. And we've increased the avoided cost value to the grid from $150 to $680 a year. And this is 10% of the population. And I know their addresses. I know their email addresses. We know who they are. We can pick them out. And that's actually what we're doing now in these paper performance programs, which is the aggregators are, we're providing analytics to we're identifying who are the customers that will benefit from the service I'm providing. And then working with the utility to figure out literally who they are so that you can go knock on their door. Because when you get a customer that has such a crap HVAC system that they're using way more than anybody else, it's costing them a ton. By the way, they probably, I don't have data on this, but I would guess they probably have comfort issues, something going on here. And they're worth so much money to the grid, totally different business model emerges. These are customers that are actually going to cash flow for real. And with $700 in avoided costs per year, you can show up with three people, give them free stuff. You can do all sorts of things. So we need to start here. We got to identify the population that's going to benefit, not push air conditioners and building performance because it's the right thing to do. Let's start by identifying the customers that would benefit from our products the most. Within the same portfolio, by the way, there's 25% of all customers that we can isolate, which have negative savings overall, 51% negative savers, and they overall, because of that, have negative energy savings, and they entirely cost ratepayers money. What we're isolating for here are the customers that are getting air conditioners, but didn't have one in the first place. And this is one of the problems with heat pumps, by the way. So if you give people heat pumps, you're building winter load, but a good percentage, a reasonable percentage are newly getting air conditioning at the same time. And personally, I'm in that category. So this idea of targeting is perhaps the most important thing in all of efficiency. We have the means to know who our customers are in advance, and it has such a drastic impact on their grid value and those customers' values that we're basically going in blind if we don't start here. 
identify in advance who has the potential to save. And if you remember early on, I said the big secret is you have to use energy before you can save it. That We are doing a lot of fancier stuff than that in many places. But the fundamental thing is if you don't use an air conditioner, I could install the most efficient air conditioner on earth with brand new ducts and a super control system and insulate the whole house and your bills will still go up. You need to have the utility in order to do the targeting because otherwise you don't have the meter data. Yes, ideally, because then we can cut down on cost of customer acquisition by knowing in advance who we should talk to. But the alternative we call qualification, it's the same thing. So in places that have working green button connect systems, which are still fairly far and few between, but for example, let me give you my real example because like I'm retrofitting my own house. It's way too hard, by the way, given that I'm a professional contractor in theory. The whole thing is hard, but I'm part of the advanced upgrade program. And when I signed up for that program, I got an email that actually originated from Recurve, but it was through the green to the contractor, but it was coming from the contractor said, now you should link your account. And when I linked my account, I clicked a button and said, give me your name and address, give me account number at this point, account is linked. Build a green and the contractor then got my data and we ran the same analysis on a prospective basis. So you can also do this when you engage a customer and say, cool, let's get your usage data. We can use that to do things like calibrate our model and whatnot, but we can also use that to determine how much HVAC you're actually using. And if you're a good potential customer, I mean, it doesn't mean you say no to people, but if you don't have an air conditioner in the beforehand, then you should probably pay for it. You shouldn't expect ratepayers to do that. And if you're not using HVAC, don't seal the ducts, sell them baseload and lighting and things that will actually help. Tailor the solution. Yeah, exactly. And so you can do it. It's just more efficient if you can work with the utility. And frankly, ratepayer advocates and utilities, I think folks are realizing how essential this step is. And there's like nothing equitable about pushing customers into stuff that are going to make their bills go up, basically. And we don't build power plants on average in everybody's neighborhoods. We do it based on where the need is. We got to apply that same thinking here. So do you think this is the kind of thing that's I consider like there's a lot of typical players, uh, a lot of the aggregators, utilities, state energy authorities that do this kind of thing from the last 20 years, 30 years. It needs to be more pervasive than that to have a, a national impact. Do you think this has the substance to become something of national impact? I think we're well on our way. It's not going to happen overnight. We're still early in some, everything is in the right direction and we're proving the point. I mean, the utilities they kind of move slow until they don't. And we're feeling that kind of quickening happen where we've gone through a lot of the early testing. And I didn't really address your earlier question, like where is this happening and who are our customers? And so in California, we have actually changed the game already. Legislatively, we introduced a concept called normalized metered energy consumption, NMEC, which says, look, we're not going to do deemed averages anymore. We know those don't work. And these custom engineered individual projects, it could be worth it if you're doing a big industrial facility, but in general, they're too expensive and bespoke on all levels. Just the economics don't work. So NMEC is an alternative to that. And it's actually mandated that this is how we're going to measure all savings towards our governor's doubling goals and towards our climate goals is through NMEC, which is normalized metered savings at the meter, inclusive of all things, including code and behavior. This is about what happens at the meter. So we're running a bunch of those programs with utilities up and down California, SMUD, PG&E, MCE, SoCal Gas, soon a number of the CCAs in addition to MCE, pretty large footprint and a lot of adoption. And the biggest change, we've been running pay for performance programs, probably the most interesting one being the residential pay for performance program with PG&E, where four different companies have contracts that are 
paid based on savings that are delivered over time with a 3x kicker and the four to nine summer peak window where they get paid more for delivering energy when it's really valuable. And those companies are Franklin, ICF, Build It Green, though Build It Green and Franklin just merged, so it might be down to three in theory, and Home Energy Analytics. And each of them have very different business models getting paid for outcomes with an incentive to build a business model. And they're really developing business models that haven't existed historically because their goal is save energy in the system peak. And so that's up and running. But probably the biggest news is that we're also moving all of our efficiency programs in California and all being all the downstream programs, 60% of the portfolio, kind of everything any customer will ever see directly into third parties. And those bids are out, have actually come into the utilities and it's looking like something like 80% of the responses are NMEC, normalized metered energy consumption-based responses instead of deemed and custom. And all of them, at least for PG&E, will have at least some minimum of around 25%, but it could be as high as 75%. So the commission is weighing in on this right now, paid on performance. So in that regard, the change has already happened and nobody's noticed. Custom deemed is dead in California. California wrote the technical resource manual that everybody else uses. We're also working heavily in Oregon. We work with the Energy Trust. We actually track all of their meters in the state. We automate all of their evaluation. It can actually be automated, not just at the end, but in real time with comparison groups. And we also run some pay-for-performance programs for them. And then there's a lot of action in New York. There's actually a pay-for-performance in the small-medium business space, RFP, that is due in the next week or so with Con Ed and NYSERDA. There will be a residential pay-for-performance being launched with National Grid later this year, and another with PSEG Long Island, probably early next year in New York State. Uh, and we're also in places like New South Wales and Australia and various other places around the country. And so we're seeing a lot of momentum. I mean, this stuff just kind of makes sense. Why are we paying for stuff up front and taking all the risk? And by the way, rate payer incentives are great, but $8 billion a year does not scale to achieve our client goals, our carbon goals, right? We need a lot more money than that. So it's really starting to move. And then on the other side of the equation, and by that, I mean aggregators, which is really a catch-all. An aggregator can be a program implementer we know today and largely is, but it can also be a technology or an IoT company. It could also be a contractor that's large enough to deal. I think not all small contractors will have the bandwidth or the balance sheet to be an aggregator, but just like in the solar industry, you've got Sunrun, but you also have had historically Tesla and others. They're all different business models. So it's pretty much a catch-all for anybody that's engaging a customer to deliver energy benefits and get paid for them in aggregate. Essentially, many, I would say, the bulk of the program implementers are now moving in this direction. Many of them already have contracts to get paid for performance. We're seeing a lot of new innovation coming in because for the first time, these are not monopoly contracts anymore. There's room for ICF and home energy analytics to both compete. Let the ideas that actually the customer's attention and the results win. And then the other thing that I think is really important to talk about before we close this out is what pay for performance actually is if you're a contractor or an aggregator. Getting paid for performance, having a contract, we call these flexibility purchase agreements, an FPA, that says you're going to get paid over time, does not actually mean the aggregator and the customer is waiting around to get paid by any means. In fact, I think it's a problem if that's what occurs. Sure. It's hard to run a business that way. It's hard to run a business that way, and you don't need to. When you build a power plant, when anybody builds a power plant, the type of financing you build that power plant is called an infrastructure investment, project finance. Project finance is not financing projects. It's financing cash flows from projects. So we're creating a cash flow for the first time ever in energy efficiency. So if you're going to build a power plant, like going back to that analogy, I need a billion dollars to build my gas plant. You're going to give it to me because I'm going to be selling my electrons to Duke Energy for the next 20 years. And it's the cash flow that's being financed. And you finance that with infrastructure investing. It's very low interest rate. It's very scalable. 
But in energy efficiency, we've been thinking about financing energy efficiency using consumer credit and assets, right? Equity, which is the most expensive capital on earth. So in pay for performance, the aggregator gets a contract to get paid over time. It turns out energy efficiency in a portfolio is a very stable, has very stable yields. And so you can forecast the value of that cash flow. And we are already insuring those cash flows. We don't do it. We facilitate it. We provide analytics. But Build a Green, for example, has an insurance policy. I guess Franklin now has an insurance policy with Munich Re backstopping their portfolio's yields. We have a whole stable of project finance investors, some of the largest, most well-known, also impact funders, family offices, folks that will buy those cash flows and front the money. So the way this actually works is the performance risk flows off of the rate payer and the regulator to the marketplace. And then you finance and insure that cash flow like an infrastructure investment, which fronts the bulk of the money that you use then to incentivize the customer and build the project. And you finance that long-term cash flow like you're building a power plant. And we're actually doing that now, which is really exciting because we can't finance this trillion dollar behind the meter investment with consumer credit. It's just too inefficient. That's pretty wild. I'm just listening to all this and feeling like, are there any competitors to what you're doing out there? Are you totally in a unique position? It's hard to say. There are definitely competitors. Most of the companies are differently constructed than us, if that makes sense. There are other companies that do m The Caltrack open meter system is completely open source. It's very accessible and we expect competition. We can't be the only ones. This is why it's open. Nobody can own measurement and we can't be the only ones able to measure for a market to exist. In terms of putting all the pieces together and the broader picture that we're painting, that's a little bit unique to us, I think. It seems like your perspective from having run a contracting business, you're very sensitive to how this would all come together at the customer and contractor level, which is really where the decisions have to be made <laughs> to spend. That's where they're going to come from. A customer and a contractor have to decide to be involved. Exactly. So at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. We're going to let the market, the contractor, the aggregator innovate on new technologies and business models and how to engage their customers and how to incentivize them in the right ways that make actual sense where the better job they do, the more money they make. So the missing link, the thing that we do special to facilitate that is that we have developed a consistent definition for what the heck we're actually trading in because nothing works till you do that. But once you have that weights and measures, once you have Caltrack in the open E meter that you can put in a contract and say, I'm going to pay you, I'm going to pay you based on Caltrack 2.0 and the most recent version of the open E meter or X version of it, right? Everything else we're doing, by the way, is not innovative at all. Our thesis is copy solar. Look at how it's done everywhere else. We know how to do project finance. So a lot of the lessons I learned came from being neck deep in solar securitizations, which is some of the work I was doing prior to starting this version of Recurve. Once you have that agreement on how to get paid is really how everything else works. Everybody gets paid on performance. Nobody gets paid up front based on some Excel model. That's not reasonable. Everybody that creates a cash flow. I mean, JCI sells an ESCO agreement. It's a different type of cash flow, but they bring it to Hannon Armstrong to finance. Like We're just doing the same thing. The big missing link has been our inability to measure. And in fact, we do this weird thing where we say, we're going to predict something up front. That's how we're going to get paid. Every other industry, you make an upfront prediction. It's called a pro forma. It's a model. You make an estimate, but nobody else paid based on your estimate. You get paid on what you actually deliver. So it's innovative, but it's also not really. We have a kind of a standing rule. like never invent anything new. If you have to come up with something new, you're probably doing it wrong. This yardstick is the golden link, pun intended. The reason we spent so much, really seven years getting there, because like building an, a real transparent open system that holds water was not easy, is not easy, but it is the missing link. 
literally the definition of a market is two or more parties trading on a product and you have to have a product, then everything starts working. Weights and measures, it's actually a power of Congress. There was a time when actually every state in the US had a different definition for a bushel of corn. NIST and the Congress stepped in and defined it because you can't trade if every bushel of corn is different. When it comes to it's simple, it's as rudimentary and as fundamental as that. I think I must have seen your presentation with about the weights and measures, how being it's fundamental to the operation of our country. Yes, it's right at the heart. You just can't we're trading in a commodity. We gotta know what the heck it is. So if people want to learn more about all of this, you gave me some great resources, and that would be the recurve.com website. And there's like some great video clips from various presentations that you've done. That's a great place to learn. The videos are a nice way, nice two-minute videos, a bunch of them. That is a very digestible way to dig through some of these ideas. And I think you'll find segments on pretty much everything we talked about. Also, I think I sent to you, we just recently published an electricity journal, which is kind of a scholarly academic journal, but part of the Regulatory Assistance Project's special edition on flexibility. That's also in about eight pages, a really good overall description. And then there's the caltrack.org website, which it's a bit nerdy, <laughs> but if you want to understand when we, when we talk about Caltrack and I talk about methods, what that is, it's all there. And this stuff is really sensitive. I mean, it's important. Like Making changes to these models, is you can fundamentally change the answer with very small changes to how you do the math. And that's really what you'll find. Caltrack is drastically more detailed than anything that's existed before and to the level of reproducibility, which what makes a difference. We can definitely send those resources. And I think in general, just this market is happening. Its energy efficiency is growing up. It's not about saving energy anymore. You can save energy and actually cost money and not save carbon. It's about flexibility and demand. And energy efficiency is a drastically undervalued part of that. It's not dispatchable, but it is predictable in long term and it is low cost. And so I think everybody just needs to start thinking about what we're producing as a value, not just to customers, but also to the grid and how we fully monetize that so that there's an incentive to deliver customer benefits and grid benefits as we move into this new world that will make it so we see business models start to prosper that are able to deliver on both of those values. An awful lot to digest here. You're a brilliant guy, I got to say. <laughs> you can edit that part out, please. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm in awe of the things that you and your companies have done over time and how you're approaching things. And it is so much behind the scenes right now, but it will become so apparent in the future. I think it's going to take some time, like we talked about, but in the future, people will come to understand and respect this foundation you've built, uh, this yardstick that you've built in order to be able to do this good work. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We spoke with Matt Golden about energy demand as a resource. I also host the Res Talk podcast, which talks a lot about residential energy efficiency. You can find that at Res Talk by putting ResTalk into the search bar of any typical podcast app. If you like what you heard today and you're not yet subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so by typing Building HVAC Science into the search bar. Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited, and we hope you enjoyed what you heard today. If you want to reach out to me, you can reach me at bill at truetechtools.com. Thank you very much. We hope to have you back again listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.